before we head into the sermon, uh, let's pray to our God um, just about the needs and cares and concerns of our world. Uh, he is a God who hears us. He is a God who knows what we need. Father, um, we lift up to you um, all of our, our schools in Greater Cleveland, uh, particularly those in the city. Um, and just ask, as uh, those uh, are, are coming to a conclusion, they're in their final month-ish, um, and students are growing weary, and teachers are growing weary, um, that they would uh, hold to the end the work that they have to do, um, that they might be knowledgeable, that they might gain insight, that you would bless them with the, uh, particularly the students, with the reasoning skills that they need, that they might seek you well in their time on this earth. We pray, Father, that um, particularly those in our company here at Gateway, that you would strengthen them in these uh, weary end weeks uh, for the work ahead. And we pray for our families as they prepare for the, the summer and adjustments of their schedules, in particular for those uh, single parent families and, and, and families where there simply is not much supervision available for the summer. that you would help those parents to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that they would find comfort and support among your people who are one of your greatest gifts to us, that you would surround them with fathers who aren't fathers and mothers who aren't mothers, uh, brothers and sisters who aren't brothers and sisters to support them over those summer months. We pray, Father, for the nation of El Salvador, and, and we ask uh, for uh, a gospel light and a revival to break out there. We pray particularly for the evangelization and the conversion of those in their maras, in the gangs there. Uh, Father, forgive us. Uh, for our role and responsibility as a nation in uh, creating the context for many of those gangs to take root, even exporting them um, to El Salvador. And we pray, Father, that um, we would, your churches, even exercise the preaching of the gospel well to bring salvation to those in affiliated uh, gangs here in the United States, that they might export that gospel hope rather than the violence and corruption. We pray for church planting in El Salvador and the training of new leaders that your church might prosper and your saints might thrive. We pray for the uh, greater uh, region of Central America, um, where so many are numbered uh, among the Jewish population and yet are Hispanic, they're Spanish-speaking, and uh, 
very little gospel light there to point them to the true Messiah, the true hope of Israel. We pray, Father, that those in that number who have come to see that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the glorious King, who is bringing a kingdom, would be emboldened in their faith and with a knowledge of the culture would bring hope and healing even to Israel of old in those places. We pray for your churches to generally not be uh, embarrassed or ashamed by the gospel that they hold, that we hold, that it is indeed for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. Father, we pray for our brother Caleb as he preaches this morning from your word that we might be encouraged by it, that we might be blessed by it, that you might strengthen him for this task, that you would help him to preach faithfully all the things that you have for him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm to invite uh, Caleb Weaver up, who's uh, preaching for us this morning. This is sermon number three, four. It's six? Has it been six? Wow. Uh, so he's old hat. So like, you should have very high standards at this point for Caleb. Uh, no, we're excited to have Caleb up here and um, given the opportunity to preach a little bit from a different genre, a different type of literature from the book of Isaiah this morning. Um, so uh, let's listen well to what God has to say through our brother. Thanks, Chris. So, I was laid off about a month ago. Uh, the company that I was working at, for various reasons, uh, as, they, as they told me, they no longer needed someone in my role. So my role was eliminated, and I was immediately relieved of duty. Uh, I knew that my company was looking to downsize its staff, but this was still a surprise. After all, much like every other statistically unlikely event, I assumed that it probably wouldn't be me. They were getting rid of 10% of their people, and I'm probably in the 90%, right? So I really had no indication that it would happen other than the, the knowledge that people were being let go until I woke up one morning to an email saying, well, I don't have to go into work today. That was kind of nice, at least. Now, sometimes I would think about how I would react to significant misfortune. For me, being surprisingly laid off was, was one of those things. I always thought that I would be really upset at the news, that I would take it as, as like a deep personal insult, um, that I would really impact, that it, would, that it would really impact my identity. I think of myself as being really good at my job and that maybe getting laid off would, would shake my confidence in my abilities. I get a lot of validation, motivation out of my career success. Um, I love finding out that, that what I've done is really useful to people, that, that the things that I'm helping with are, are really making a difference in the processes um, that, that people go through on their day to day and that I can really help companies and organizations. This gives me a lot of validation. And I really thought that being told, hey, you don't need to work here anymore, 
would really be devastating to me. I see a lot of people that are emotionally wrecked when they lose their jobs, and I always suspected that I would be one of those too. So I'll say that I was surprised when I, I wasn't really. Um, I kind of took the news in stride, like strangely so. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that my character is such that I, I didn't expect that I would react to this news the way I did. But God tells us that he is our refuge. And it's only by him that I really have comfort in this time. Really, it's a good reminder of, of where that refuge comes from, where that identity comes from. It's a good reminder that, that during these stormy times in my life, in our lives, the God, he's the one that calms the waves. But he's also much more than that. So this morning, let's open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 51. We're going to read, it's a pretty long chunk. Uh, we're going to read through chapter 52, verse 12 this morning. The book of Isaiah is what we call one of the major prophets. Major just meaning that it's, it's long. It's not really more important than any of the minor prophets. It's just a really long book. Um, we're going to read through different selections from Isaiah in, in the next few months as one of the other, uh, the other not main preachers said to me, oh, you're the reason that we're all preaching from Isaiah. I said, yeah, I guess. <laughs> um, but since, since this is the first selection from Isaiah, I want to make sure to give a bit of context around the book, um, especially since we're jumping in kind of towards the end of it. So Isaiah was a prophet during the time of 700 B.C., during this time in, in Israel, the kingdom had split between the northern kingdom of Israel, um, that was still called Israel, and, and the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. Both of these kingdoms were still God's people, were still in a lot of ways the, the nation of Israel, as we might refer to them, but they were different countries at this point. Now, Israel in the north, they had forsaken God's teachings pretty completely, while Judah was a little more mixed in its history. Isaiah, the prophet, lived uh, in, in Judah, in the southern kingdom, and lived during the reign of many different kings. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. You don't need to write all these down. It's not that important for what we talk about today, but I want to give you some context. So some, like Jotham, were good and successful at, at leading the people to follow God, making sure that the kingdom was, was following after God's law. Most, however, failed miserably. Uzziah was prideful. Ahaz allowed images of false idols to be kept around the kingdom and eventually allowed Judah to become a vassal state of Assyria. And then Hezekiah followed God just enough to get out from Assyria's thumb, which is great, good job, and then ignored the prophet Isaiah, some of the warnings that he puts in this book, and led to Israel's eventual capture by the Babylonians and the exile of all of the people of Judah to Babylon, 
It's during these conquers and reconquers that Isaiah proved himself to be a prophet, that he gave evidence that what he wrote in this, in this book is something we should pay attention to. You see, God tells his people in Deuteronomy, and if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word that the word that the Lord has not spoken, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if a word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So God tells his people that the way to discern if a prophet is a true prophet is whether or not what they've said comes true. So when Isaiah predicts the capture of Israel by Assyria and then, and then Judah by Babylon and never has a false prediction and does so before any of it happens, well, people start giving his word some weight. So this passage that we're about to read is actually for the people of 450 B.C., about 250 years after he writes it. This is during the time that, that Judah is ruled by Babylon and for them during their exile. So with all of that in mind, let's read. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. You who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, awake, as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass? And have you forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? 
And you fear continually all day long because the wrath of the oppressor, when he sets himself to destroy, and where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons that she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your people, your, your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall be, shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord your God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord? Seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually, all the day, my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together, they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our guard, of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. T touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out in haste and you shall not go out in flight, for the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. 
Isaiah saw his people shying away from God. He saw king after king not giving the proper weight and respect to their creator and ruler. Israel was meant to be God's chosen nation, yet they continually strayed away from him. Looking at verse 3, we see the promise that God offers to his people. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. He makes her wilderness like Eden. God promises to take those places in the nation that are most desolate and worthless, make them like the perfect garden that he dwelt in with humanity in perfect communion. This is a beautiful image being told to a captured people. Israel probably didn't feel like this is being described. They probably felt abandoned, like God wasn't paying any attention to them. Maybe he's forgotten about them. After all, with all of his promises, how could he allow something like this to happen? But God warned his people time and time again to follow him. But Israel continued to stray. He tells them in, in 51.17, Wake yourself, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. God has told his people time and time again that it's their actions that God's wrath would come to them. It's their unfaithfulness. Looking through the Bible, the reason for this is pretty obvious. Chris has been going through the book of, of 1 Samuel, and as we see, even 300 years before the prophet saw these events coming, Israel had already decided that they didn't want God to be their king. Now, when, when Israel was, was founded, God was their king, and, and they were given his instruction by prophets. But Israel had decided that they didn't want God to be their king anymore. They wanted a big, strong king like King Saul that we've been talking about in the last few weeks. Now, implications aside that they wanted a big, strong king and opted away from the one who created all things and had saved them from slavery in Egypt, the God who, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed, God's enslaved people, to pass over and walk across the Red Sea to escape Egypt. After all that God had done, Israel wanted a human king, one that they could relate to. Maybe they didn't really consider what this would get them. This would give them a king that's as flawed as they were, a king that could have delusions that his wise protector, like David, was actually conspiring against him. A king that saw lies and deceit wherever he looked. A king that would invite his son-in-law into his courts and throw spears at him. This is the kind of king that Israel wanted, not God. 
There are plenty of other occasions through the Old Testament where Israel turned their back on God. During times of trouble, they grew frustrated that God was ignoring them. Then during times of prosperity, they ignored him since they didn't need him. That sounds familiar. This continued, and each time God reminded them, look to the rock from which you were hewn. Come back to God, your refuge. So it's by their their own hand that they've strayed from the Lord. He's just gracious enough to offer them forgiveness time and time and time again to let them come back. But each time they stray further and further. How easy is it for us to look back on the history of God's chosen people and see where they go wrong? And then we take a careful look at our own lives and maybe we see some similar patterns. God promises us fulfillment and comfort, but we turn away. We live our lives in isolation from each other, from him, and we don't really consider what goodness he has for us, what plans he has put in place. God is our backup. He's our our heavenly father that offers us fulfillment in, in kind of an abstract sense, but we don't take that to heart. We feel empty but we hold on to our empty hearts and our empty lives without ever really giving those over to God. I've read the Bible so often with this mindset of of trying to understand mentally what it means, trying to to keep track of the stories and the plots and, and the facts and keep everything in the book straight in my head and trying to gain some understanding of of the words without ever really letting them touch my heart. Without ever really thinking about the love that God has for me or for any of his children. We get so stuck on technically correct, on making sure that we remember exactly how many baskets of fish were passed out when, when Jesus was preaching or what years things might have happened in, that we forget what what really understanding the Bible looks like and what it feels like. God is calling his people to refuge, and yet we wander out into the storm. We turn away from the promises that God has for us. He says, I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand. And we say, okay, cool, that's fine. We're happy about that, I guess. But then we turn and and we still walk in sin. We don't really think about the impact that that has on our lives. We still lie at our job to protect our reputation. We still hoard wealth so we can build our own refuge. We still live in, in modern culture. In this world, just like everyone else. My wife, Molly, and I, we were on our honeymoon trip to Thailand. Um, and in Thailand, the, the state religion is Buddhism. And so when we went there, we saw quite a few Buddhist temples. 
to sort of see and get to know the culture. And there were a few moments on our trip that brought into, this, that brought into question this question of, of what is showing respect to another culture and what is showing deference to another god? At one of these times, there was, at one of these monasteries, there was, there was a monk who would bless a strand of cord and, would, and you would tie it to your wrist um, and, you, and that would keep the blessing with you. And for Molly and, and I, it seemed pretty clear that we didn't have any value for this blessing from a false god. I use that term lightly because even in Buddhism, it's, it's not really a god, but, you know, that's not really the point here. Um, and, and so we, we didn't have any value for this blessing. We didn't have any use for it. But, but maybe more importantly, God has marked us as his people. And we ought to be careful not to mark ourselves for any other gods. And a symbol like this, a blessing from Buddhism, a religion that believes that there are no gods, but instead raises this idea of perfection and humanity as deity. For us, it seemed obvious to to steer clear from. So I was a little surprised at just how many people in our, our tour group went and got these blessed strings from this monk. Most of them didn't really seem to pay it any mind. Uh, they kind of treated it like a tourist gift. Um, and I'd kind of be surprised to, to find out that they really had thought about what they were getting, about the implications of this gift. And now I'm, I'm sure that not all of the group would confess themselves to be Christians. But we talked to quite a few of them, and, and several definitely considered themselves to be Christians. We'll talk about the regular attendance at church and, and some of those different things that you kind of think, you probably think yourselves to be Christians. And I'm sure many of them are. And for sure, maybe this was fine for them. In, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul writes to the Corinthians about eating food that was sacrificed to idols, saying, we know that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. And food will not condemn us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it, and no better off if we do. He's saying that, that if someone eats these, this food that has been offered to a pagan idol, that it's not going to condemn them to God. And, and maybe these strings, these cords from this monk, fell into that same camp but I can't help but see the differences between the two instances. We need to eat food. And eating that food publicly wasn't really marking these Christians in the early times as followers of these false deities. More likely, I think it seemed for these people just like a fun thing to do. And they were, I suspect, swept up in a tide of culture, didn't really think about how important such a small thing might be. But God cares about those small things. 
Symbols matter to him. God is looking for a people whose hearts belong to him, whose first concern is always, what does my God want? But we continue on our own. In verse 18, it says, there's none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There's none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in the net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Israel had strayed from God's commandments for hundreds of years. The Lord continued to show them patience time after time in their transgressions, but Israel continued to stray. God warned them, again, that if they continue on this path of unrighteousness, they will walk alone. He warns them that not only will they experience devastation and destruction, but their sons, their their family lines, will lie in the street like an antelope in a net captured. Israel warns, Isaiah warns that that Israel's sons will be captured rather than walking with Jerusalem, that Jerusalem won't have anyone to guide her. And this is exactly what comes to pass once Babylon conquers Israel. The Israelites are exiled from Jerusalem, taken away to the lands of Babylon. The land is populated with foreigners. Israel was alone. Her sons, the generations since Isaiah, warned them of God's wrath. They were captured. They were hunted and taken in nets like prey, full of God's rebuke. But God offers them refuge. Look to the rock from which you were hewn the quarry from which you were dug, from the dust and dirt from where God first made us. We who are so lowly, we're still looked after. If he can turn dust into a living, breathing human made after his own image, well, what concern is it of ours and of Israel's, that their land is a wilderness, that their home is a desert. All things can be made new by God. The strange thing is, God doesn't just warn of destruction to the people that turn away from him. In verses 4 through 6, he calls for for, for people to give him attention. He tells them that his justice his salvation will go out and will judge the people. He says that the coastlands, the lands around Israel, around the seas, hope for him. All the lands are anticipating the work of the Lord. And what does God say will happen to it? The heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. Now this is ancient Israel 
Their, their garments were used for probably longer than most of ours, for more work than most of ours. Imagine the, the average Israelite in a tunic with tears and frays from all the fields they've plowed and from all the animals they had to wrangle. How long would a sturdy wool tunic last? What might it look like when the person finally gave it up? Gave up trying to patch it and just use it for scrap cloth. The people who dwell in the earth will die just like it. What we need to realize is that the wrath we experience during these times still from the cup of the Lord. He hasn't just promised his wrath towards the unrighteous. He says the earth will wear out. The Lord is the one who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. He was the one to cut Rahab into pieces to pierce the dragon, the the ancient symbol for Egypt. The Lord is mighty and he is dangerous. And see, that's the thing. The Lord isn't just your refuge. God is the storm itself. God doesn't promise an easy life here and doesn't promise perfection during our lives. He tells us of the real dangers. He tells us, fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. This was written to God's people. You will be reproached. You will be reviled. But we don't have to fear. We're told not to fear man who is made like grass. In the eyes of God, that's all man really is. The fears of this world are only temporary. They're a blip. We hold back from doing God's will. We don't keep his commandments or reach out to the rest of the world commands us to. We don't give him our whole hearts. We let ourselves be wrapped up in this world. Our eyes aren't on heaven. We read his word analytically or habitually or maybe not at all. But we don't do it wholeheartedly. We don't read God's word looking for it to change our perspective to lift up our eyes, we look for a king that we can relate to. We look for a king that's as flawed as we are. In Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, um, most of you probably know this, and if you don't, that's okay. You will in a minute. But I want to take a minute to look at this with the knowledge of what God is doing to his people Israel. On that day, when the evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, Let us go across to the other side. Jesus had been followed by crowds around the Sea of of Galilee, and it it was time for them to get away, go somewhere new. He'd been preaching and teaching, and the people were listening to him. In verse 36, And leaving the crowd, they, Jesus' disciples, took him with them in a boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. A lot of people were continuing to follow Jesus, 
trying to learn more from him. Verse 38, and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus is sitting in the back of the boat on a cushion asleep in a storm and the disciples are freaking out because they think that they're about to die. And he awoke and rebuked the wind, said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? They were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, many of us read this, and I'm sure many of you have heard this story before, and we think about how Jesus can calm the storms in our lives, how he is in control, and he is. But we need to give consideration to this boat full of professional fishermen in a time where your profession has been passed down generation to generation, where they have likely been raised as fishermen, raised around the Sea of Galilee, and they go out into the sea on this boat and caught in a windstorm that threatens their lives. I don't know much about fishing or sailing, granted, but I know enough that I'm pretty sure most fishermen are aware when a big storm is coming, enough to say, yeah, maybe we won't sail right now. And so you have to wonder, why did they go out? Why were they surprised? How did they get caught in, out on the sea in this storm that's threatening their lives? Where did that storm come from? And did it creep up on them? Are we to assume that the fishermen didn't realize that the storm was coming on? Maybe the storm came on too quickly. Maybe it was too fast for the disciples to realize that it was there and the danger that it might possess. Did it come on miraculously fast? Who stirs up the seas so that its waves roar? God knew the lack of faith in the disciples. God knew that they would be afraid. God knew that they would think that they're perishing, that they would see their lives at risk. He needed to show them who he was, who Jesus was. He needed to increase their faith for the trials to come because there were worse trials to come. God will do that. God will put us through things that are so difficult that we think there's nothing harder that we could go through than that. And then maybe God will put us through something harder. Israel was exiled from their country. Their sons were bound up like antelopes, carted off to Babylon. All their family their friends taken away from their holy city. 
from the land that they grew up in. God knows the trials. He knows the wrath that he's pouring out. His intent is never to wipe out his people. He promised Abraham, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. He remembers his promises. He tells Israel here, Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. He wants Israel to remember their promises the way that God does. He knows that they are his people. And he'll protect them. He'll cover them in the shadow of his hand. He has a plan. He knows it will be painful. He says, their rulers wail and continually, all the day, my name is despised. God, who is the only reason for this great nation in the first place, he does this knowing that his name will be despised. When's the last time you did something good, just knowing you would be hated for it? Unjustly hated by his own people. Far more literally later than it may seem now. But God will bring his people back. He says, Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more, and I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, Bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground, like the street for them to pass over. God created his people from the dust, from the dirt. But here he sees them ground back into that dirt, bowing down so that their enemies, God's enemies, may pass over them. When God's people aren't supposed to bow to anyone other than God, God will allow his people to go through this trial for a time, but they're still his people. He tells them, he who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. God has promised that the wrath, God has promised that wrath to the nation's enemies. His enemies have worse ahead for them, but God's people will be redeemed. How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Israel needed some good news. Things were bleak. Things would be bleak. Isaiah was still warning the people of Israel. All of this was coming before any of it happened. Before Israel was under Assyrian rule, before Judah was under Babylonian rule, this happened, this was told to them before the exile. And God, through Isaiah, is warning them of the coming trials and telling them of the salvation Israel, who has been so depraved as to continue to follow false gods and to bow before the rulers of these other kingdoms, God is still going to send them a savior. Now, 
Israel is probably thinking, hey, thanks, Isaiah. Great. Whenever we get conquered by the Babylonians, at least someone's going to come along to get us out of it. Because the seeds of your faith are not rooted without the winds of the storm to strengthen them. It has no impact to offer someone salvation before they know they need saved. And we know that it didn't have an impact on Israel and that they didn't believe Isaiah because we still see them go down this path. We don't see them turn back on the road that they had gone down. We read this statement in the future, in today's time, and so a, a prophetic statement, it, it kind of loses something when we're past the event. Now, if, if I tell you that Ohio is going to be taken over by Canada, and then it happens, well, that's pretty wild. You all probably remember that. But 100 years down the road, it loses its luster. People hear about the story of the guy that called that Canada was going to conquer Ohio, and they go, oh, yeah, I guess. Like, eh, I probably knew something about it. Like, it probably wasn't real prophecy. Just loses something. But it's important to keep in mind that this book was written before any of this happened. Now, this is just a concrete warning of God to his people of the events to come. And yet, they continued to be puppets of the Assyrian Empire and to the Babylonians. They continued to let pagan religions infect God's people. They have drunk from the cup of wrath from the hand of the Lord. And so the prophecy as Isaiah is told by God comes to pass over the next 200 years. God's people would fall to the Assyrians and to Babylon. They would be exiled to Babylon, but eventually set free. They were set free when Babylon was conquered by Persia. The Persian Empire let the Israelites return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. But here, what we see in chapter 52, there's more than just another empire coming to the rescue. Isaiah talks about someone who comes with good news, publishing peace. Who comes to Zion and proclaims the reign of their God. That doesn't sound like another pagan empire. The Persians were by no means into this whole Judaism thing. They were just more happy to let people do whatever they wanted to do as they conquered them. They were by no means someone coming to Zion and proclaiming the reign of their God. So this then sounds like someone coming for the express purpose of redeeming God's people. After this, the watchmen see the return of their Lord to Zion. At his coming, they lift up their voices. We see them again in Isaiah 62, verse 6, but they are the righteous who remain awake and steadfast during these long, quiet, dark periods. They're awaiting the return of God because they know he and he alone will redeem his people. 
They believe these words, this group of watchmen. They know that they have been beaten and battered through this trouble, through this storm, but they know what the Lord has promised. So they lift up their voices when they witness it. The land itself breaks out into song, anxious for her waste places to be comforted. Israel will be saved from this exile to Babylon, but there's a greater exile. They're apart from their God. God is a holy entity, mighty and perfect. And Israel, while being his children, his chosen people, are still covered in filth. And they're unclean. They're only able to come to him through offerings and sacrifices. Only the high priest able to go into the Holy of Holies, the central part of the temple, to approach God as they are forced to try to cleanse their sin through the blood of animals, the law given to them by God, and they fail and fail again. God has a plan. He's the trial, and he is the refuge. He's the salvation. He stems the storm to strengthen our faith, but he also rebukes the winds and says, the waves, peace be still. God is going to send a servant. That's what the next chapter is about. I don't want to spoil it too much. The servant will show the path to salvation, to true peace. It is by this servant that God's salvation will go out and his righteousness will never be dismayed. Through this, God will bear his holy arm and all the ends of the earth shall see his salvation. Not just Israel, not just the surrounding empires, but the ends of the earth shall see his salvation. Christian, for you and I, we will see this salvation. For all of those, for all of you that that don't know who his servant is, don't know who Jesus is, He's the one that covers our sins. He's the one that covers our continued iniquity and our blaspheming nature in the sight of God so that we can be a part of his people. It is the Savior that protects us. The Savior that says that God's people no longer have to go in haste like when they fled from Egypt. God's people no longer need to be on their guard with this new Savior. For so long, God's people were ready to run continually. But 52 verse 12 tells us that the Lord will go before us. We no longer have to go in flight The God of Israel will be our rear guard. Our God has put up protection all around us so we can lay with him on cushions in a rainstorm. It's Jesus that purifies us so that we touch no unclean thing, so that we can bear the vessels of the Lord. It's only through the redemption of 
Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that we can count ourselves as children of God. That we are counted these promises to Zion, God's chosen people. It's only by Him that we are able to put on strength, to put on garments. That like the people of Jerusalem, we can shake ourselves from the dust, pick ourselves up off the ground that the, that the enemy has trampled on, from the dirt that we were dug into, and sit up, take rest in our Lord God. For He is the calm as well as the storm. Let's pray. Lord, you are our mighty redeemer. It's only by your power that we are even able to sit here uttering this prayer to know that you hear us. You let us come to you in our most desperate times, in those times where our faith is tested, in those times where our needs are greatest. And even though those times are under your command, they are part of your plan. We ask that you give us strength and faith during those difficulties, that we might be more firmly rooted in your kingdom, that we would be ready for whatever this world throws at us so that during the times of the storm, we know we will not perish and that we would have faith. We ask that we would be counted among the watchmen, ready for your blessed return to Zion, that we would be with your kingdom, singing of the return of our God, keeping us from iniquity, Help us to be a people whose whole hearts are yours. Purify us that we touch no unclean thing. Let us be a people who cling to you during the storm and rest in your calm. Amen.